You are listening to the Twibbly Podcast, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. Comedy podcast looking back at This Week in History. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podbean, or wherever you like to get your podcasts from. You can find us and or message us over on Facebook and Instagram using TWWWBLY. Welcome back to Twibbly, or This Week Was Way Better Last Year. My name is Bill with one L. With me, he wears tan shoes with pink shoelaces. It's Jeff McLarge-Huge. It's true, it's me. Wow, what were you doing in my closet, Bill? <laughs> I was I was looking for a big Panama with a purple hat band, and I uh, thought that would be the place to go. It's, it is the place to go, but it's not <laughs> in that closet. So, What's going on? How are you? Ah, good. It's been a fun week. Fun week getting ready to record the show this week. You know, it's funny. I was I was thinking about first cars, Bill. Right. Yeah, because you just bought your daughter her first car. I did. I just bought my daughter her first car. Right. Now, did uh, you did you buy your first car, or did your parents get it for you? My, so that's <laughs> kind of a funny story. I was gifted the keys to the family car at Christmas. Ah. Except I could only use the car if no one else needed it. So it was one of those like, "Mom, can I go to the movies?" She's like, "Well, I have to go to the store and get bread." Okay. So no movies for me it's today. Not really a gift, is it? <laughs> not, not really a gift. I had my own keychain with my name on it, but I could only use the car sporadically. Oh, I see. And then uh, about six months after that, my dad bought me a fantastic baby diarrhea brown <laughs> Chevrolet Monza coupe built by blind people, I think, in 1975. <laughs> and uh, it ran. It ran. <laughs> and as like with any first car, it got me to my friends' houses and to the movies and back. And uh, it had noises that it made that weren't car-like noises and things that ticked and popped and crackled and sputtered and spaddled and made funny twists and turns and wiggles and all kinds of things that you learned were significant problems with parts of the car. But back then, hell yeah, it was, you know, safety standards were like, hey, did you die? No. Well, all right. My uh, My first car... I did buy with my own money, but that money was uh, my grandfather had put like a thousand dollars in a bank account whenever I was first born. You know, back in those days, a crazy amount of interest. So I had, you know, X amount of dollars by that time, by the time I was 16. So my first car, I did buy with my own money, but I didn't earn that money, if that makes sense. Uh That makes sense. Yeah. My uh, my grandfather bought it for me, but my grandfather died before my first birthday. So, right. But it was a 1977 Mercury Cougar. <laughs> yeah, I remember that car. That sucker got nine miles to the gallon. <laughs> you could have put my Monza in the trunk of that car, <laughs> or, or or the hood. Yeah, it it had um, the engine was like it was an eight cylinder. My mother insisted on me getting a a big car. That way uh, I could smash into trees and not get hurt, <laughs> which I did. I'll thank you to know. And yeah, and the thing is, is like, well, I think the reason why I hit stuff is because it was that car was entirely too big. It was stupid big. It belonged to a policeman prior to me because the back 
doors didn't <laughs> open from the, from the inside. Yeah, that yep. was like a kidnapping vehicle. Yeah, that was. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I remember that. I remember that car so well. Yeah. I remember when you used to you'd be you you know we'd sit at a stoplight and you'd go, the whole hood would torque. It would the whole hood would torque like thirty degrees <laughs> left and thirty degrees right, thirty degrees left. Yeah, what an amazing giant car. Now, do you remember the time? I challenged that dude, and I think, yeah, the Corvette to a race. So the story goes: we pull up. (laughs) It was senior skip day, right? And it was it was raining that day, so nobody went to the beach. I think you and I just like went to the mall or some shit. Yep. So we're out in front of the the mall at the lights, and this Corvette like pulls up, and I I like turn and I look at him, and I'm like. <laughs> and he looks at me like I'm crazy, and he like yeah. he races his engine back at me. And I don't know how the kids do it these days, but back then, them were fighting words. That's how you challenge somebody to a race. Right. So now I'm like revving my engine, and he's revving his engine. And then the light turns green, and he takes off like a shot. And then I turn right into the parking lot. <laughs> Of the mall, like just it was so funny. yeah, just so nonchalant. He must have been like, "What the hell? What the?" Uh. Oh. <laughs> it's like you know, imagine like if the Fast and the Furious was made in the 1970s. This is what it would be, <laughs> you know. There's Vin Diesel in the Camaro that that can do zero to sixty in twelve seconds, which my Mazda three can do now. <laughs> and there's you know Bill and I in the the Mercury Cougar of destruction. Right. That can do zero to sixty in just under a calendar week. I'm not sure if that thing even hit sixty when I had it. <laughs> like by the by the time it got to fifty five, that thing was shaking like a cardiograph. It was yeah, that was a that was a that was a tough ride. Yeah, I tell you, it wasn't my first car, but I I had at one point a nineteen eighty nine Volkswagen Golf. The less said about the quality of that car, the better. I, but I own this uh, the very me- same car. Oh yeah. So, so, so you too. It's like a support group. My name's Jeff. I own a Volkswagen Golf. Yeah, I'm, I'm still paying uh, off the repair bills. I'm, st- I'm still, yeah, no kidding. Um, and I thought I was going to be a smart guy instead of cleaning my car up with a brush after a f- foot of snow. I took it to the spray car wash and I sprayed the snow off and froze my car doors <laughs> closed <laughs> and uh, took a solid hour for it to thaw out enough for me to drive it again so i could get into it i froze all the locks i froze it was it was what a dumb what a dumb dumb thing to do i've never heard that story that's a brilliant yep yeah, no no it's the opposite of brilliant it's like opposite day it's dumb i wish there was a camera there because there would have been somebody who would made a million dollars off watching <laughs> dumb dumb jeff spraying his car with snow falling outside and thinking like this he's What's what's he gonna do? What is he gonna do now? Yeah, this I fine the car mist running. of water that probably took like oh. like nanoseconds to freeze. Yeah. All right, so let's, <laughs> <laughs> let's jump into the show. Uh, right. This is the week beginning September twenty eighth, and we're gonna let you start. All right, uh, in two thousand fifteen, Trevor Noah takes over hosting duties of the Daily Show, which at its height. In 2015, was one of the most popular like political and comedy TV shows on the air. Absolutely, with John Stewart at the helm, and he just, by virtue of recent interviews, he just sort of put his hands up and said, "I, I have had enough." Yep. He, he hit his limit and left. And Trevor Noah, South African comedian who is not super well known in the United States but very funny, yeah. took over. And the show changed slowly over the next year or so into a lot more like what it is now. Yep. And it's still still running strong. I uh, I listen I listened to his uh, podcast, the Ears Edition. Yep. 
I, it took me a little while to warm up to him because I really liked Jon Stewart. Yep. I liked Jon Stewart a lot before he was on The Daily Show because he used right. to do some shows on MTV. I thought he was very funny. And whenever he took over, because he used to have The Jon Stewart Show on MTV. It was a talk show. That's right. Whenever he took over for The Daily Show, I was like, oh, this is going to be brilliant because he's so good. And he is, you know. He should have been famous a long time before The Daily Show. But The Daily Show just put him on the map. Did The Daily Show come before? I think it came after he he went on Crossfire on CNN and told Paul Begala and Tucker Carlson that you guys are contributing to the problems we have in America and this show should be canceled. And it got canceled. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a you can see the video for that in, on on Facebook. It's amazing to watch him just deconstruct those two guys right there. So whenever Trevor yeah. Noah took over, I actually took, had a little issue with it because it's a political show. It's political comedy, and he was doing a lot of criticism about America. I was like, dude, you're not even from here, you know? Right. So uh, I at first I kind of had an issue with him, but I've warmed I've warmed, I've warmed up to him. He is he is very yeah. very funny. He is very funny. His stand up specials are really good yep. too. He's uh, definitely definitely worth uh, checking out. Uh, All right, right, Bill. Take us into September 29th. September 29th. Uh, speaking of not my first car, but certainly one that I wanted. September 29th, 1966 was the debut of the Chevrolet Camaro. Or as nice. any self-respecting punk rocker from the Generation X would know as the bitchin' Camaro. <laughs> The aspirational sports car. The car that your best friend's older brother got. Yes. Right after he got that promotion at, well, let's say, Zares, right? Old <laughs> stores, right? Ames. Yeah. Right. He doesn't He doesn't work the cash registers anymore. He stocks the shelves. Yeah. So He's got that sweet but, overnight money. Pioneer stereo. <laughs> Spark him out. Auto reverse yeah. cassette deck. Yeah. You know, he's got the two cutouts in the back window for the speakers that he hasn't bought yet. Car, car was big enough for two adults in the front and a picture of the kids in the back seat. <laughs> Absolutely right, yeah. This country, and maybe it's like this in other countries, I don't know, I don't live there, but this country has always had the Coke and Pepsi mentality. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, you're either a Coke guy or a Pepsi guy. You're either a Camaro dude or you're a Mustang guy, you know, or at least that's how it was in the 80s. I mean, there's certainly a lot better options now, but you were either a Mustang guy or a Camaro guy. I'm going to say I was a Camaro guy. I mean, I've never been a huge car person, but I wanted. I there was a Camaro before I got my uh, my love yacht. I <laughs> <laughs> I was eyeballing a Camaro. Yeah. I certainly wanted. It good, yeah. It's good that it was named Cougar because you always like the older ladies. Uh, that is absolutely as far from the truth as possible. <laughs> the funny thing about the '66 Camaro, like the first generation of Mustangs, man, it was a six-cylinder stripped-down. Like with a hydromatic transmission, it was not fast. Mm-hmm. They were they were sort of pegged as sort of secretaries' cars. That's why they were called pony cars. Mm-hmm. It was only in subsequent models that it sort of became a sports vehicle, a sports car, as we described them in the '60s and early '70s. Right. Um, I was always a fan of the Pontiac variant. You know, as you know, General Motors has 35 different car badges, yes. and of those, they use like eight different cars, and they just rebadge them. The ultimate Buick. My the love of my life for that time period was always the Pontiac. Firebird, which was pretty much a Camaro with a different nose and a different set of taillights, right. but it had a just a little bit of something that I thought was really attractive. Yeah, if, if I if I had the the means at that time, I always liked small foreign cars. Yep. Like I, I wanted like a like a midget. Like that, that's what I've always wanted. I've yep. in my midlife crisis, I might still actually buy one. 
So, like we brought up the bitch and Camaro, I just want to bring up this funny story about um, when I went to see the Dead Milkmen. Um, when I went to see the Dead Milkmen, it was around 1991. So it was that switchover point from the guys that you would go all the metal shows were started showing up at the punk rock shows, you know, yep. and that's when slam dancing turned into moshing. Well, there was still a very territorial punker scene at that time, you know? Yep. So there's this metal dude, like, you know, hobbling and bobbling around the uh, the campus club. He's trying to, like, you know, be the tough guy in the mosh pit, and this is a punk show, and the punkers weren't having it, you know? So yep. at one point, this dude gets up on the stage, which was all of, like, you know, six inches above the ground, but <laughs> he, like, jumps on the stage. This group of punkers caught him. Right? Like yep. nine punker dudes like caught him and then just like marched with him, carrying him away <laughs> away from the audience towards the back of the room and just hurled him into nothing. Like nice. like nobody caught him. They just threw him threw and him on the yeah, and he just like blah, like landed on the ground. And I think he was either out cold or too hurt to get back up right away because he just landed in a heap. It was freaking nice. magical. That is too funny. <laughs> that is too funny. Uh, that's my bitch and Camaro story. I think uh the Camaro's pretty much been in production since sixty six. There might be some like five year gap between the last version and the current version that's right that's like the mustangs are the same way yeah they they if if you if you think about like the longevity of that popularity of that style of car like to have never gone out of production is something else you know right that doesn't happen very often all right let's move on to the next day which is september 30th september 30th bill what's the biggest thing you've ever seen um gene simmons ego (laughs) okay fair enough the biggest thing i've ever seen was was uh Dedicated in 1935 by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, and that is the Hoover Dam. To describe it as enormous does not do justice to the word enormous. It is it's stunningly It's big. ambitious. It's ambitious. It's so and damn big. <laughs> I, uh, I went to Vegas for work one year, taken out on tour by somebody who lived locally, and found myself standing on the Pat Tillman Bridge, which is the most terrifying bridge I've ever <laughs> been on, by the way. And then looking down the side of the Hoover Dam, past like where they have mechanical rooms, and I, I, I don't even know how do you get there through tunnels or with a spaceship or something. But I was looking down, and I see something that's moving back and forth, and it looks like a pixel. Like a, imagine like a pixel on a on an on an old Nintendo Game right. Boy, just moving back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And I realized after a minute of watching this pixel that I was looking at a box truck that was doing like a twenty five point turn after delivering something to this part of the Hoover Dam, and it was so small it looked like it was a sixteenth of an inch square. It was uh, the thing is frigging massive, and it's beautiful. It's like an Art Deco masterpiece. It still has statues on it. It's all curved. It's just an amazing structure. I remember whenever I drove cross country with my brother in 2006. So think about it. It was only five years after the 9-11 attacks. When we got within, I think, I think we were like 10 or 20 miles of the Hoover Dam. We had to stop by like a checkpoint and they were randomly inspecting cars because they were kind of still expecting a terrorist attack. And let's face it, Hoover Dam would be a prime target. It would indeed. You know, 
that 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 right there supplies like all the water and electric and you know water pressure I should say and electricity and whatever to Nevada essentially you know yep Las Ve- yep. Las Vegas specifically and um yeah that's Lake Lake Mead that it holds back yeah. right that's what they they created you know I think about it, I mean that's you've been to Las Vegas the the, the amount of electricity that gets uh used up in a minute in Las Vegas think about all that electricity you're in a desert, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's not a lot going on there. Well, not just not just the electricity, the like the water. You know, yeah. you got all these yep. people, hundreds of thousands of people there, all taking showers, trying to like shake themselves up after spending the family house last night on blackjack. And, right. You know, and it wasn't me. Yeah. I didn't do and that. And then again, like you said, you know, you've been to Vegas. You walk around for you know twenty minutes, and if if you're there in the summer, you're 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 sweating. You're sweating good. Yeah, if you're walking the strip from one end to the other and back again, if you don't drink any water during that trip, I think you're like three pounds lighter when you get to the end. Oh, no, you're like a, a, the a bag start. of pixie dust. The peanut skin you get before you get to the peanut after you peel the <laughs> peanut, you know? Yeah, but you're, you're basically like a Kool-Aid pouch. Yes, you're like the bag blowing around at the very beginning of American Beauty. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, that's just the guy who was walking the strip. Get him some water quick. All right, so uh, that's a pretentious movie, but uh, this yeah. is not a pretentious movie. <laughs> uh, no, on October 1st, 1974, was the debut of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Toby Hooper's yes. fantastic sort of exploitative but still oddly watchable yep. uh, slasher film. I love the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's it's not my favorite. Uh, it's not my favorite series. Like the the sequels aren't great. I, I'll argue that the Texas Chainsaw Massacre two is unbelievably good. It's fantastic, but three is unremarkable, and four yeah. is just weird. Right. But anyway, getting back to the original, we talked about. Uh, Gunnar Hansen a few weeks ago, they did a show at the Coolidge Theater in Boston where they had a live band that like had written their own score for the movie. Right. And Gunnar Hansen was there to do a question and answering period. Nice. My friend Bruce is friends with Gunnar. So uh, he had invited us because we were all going to hang out with Gunnar for like an, you know, an hour or two before the show. So I call up my friend Rob, and my friend Rob is like two steps away from being a complete shut-in. And I was like, yep. hey, do you want to go to see the midnight showing of Texas Chainsaw Massacre tonight? He goes, midnight? Are you kidding me? I was like, we're going to get to hang out with Gunnar Hansen. He goes, uh, I'll drive. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, we hung out with Gunnar in the green room you know, prior to the show, and I got to, like, that's like one of my claims to fame. I get to, like, pour coffee for Gunnar Hansen. Really, really, really nice guy. You know, if at that question and answer period, I know exactly what I would have asked them if I had been there. Why was there a band? That was my question. I would have put my hand up and waved yep. it until he pointed at me and I would have said, Mr. Hansen, how long did it take for you to learn all your lines? <laughs> what was the subtext behind? <laughs> I, <laughs> well, it's funny. Like that movie's another retelling of, you know, taking its, its inspiration from the story of Ed Gein. Yep. The Wisconsin cannibal murderer. I think Psycho was the first, right? Hitchcock Psycho, based on Robert Block's book. Yep. And then this one. Uh, yep. And then like that. And then Buffalo Bill from 
um, Silence of the Lambs. Was based on uh, Ed Gain as well, yeah. The first time I saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and I don't know, for those of you who don't remember the wonderful world of video rental stores mm. as, as children, the inexpensive nature by which films could be released meant that companies who were releasing films wanted to make sure that they were rented. The video stores typically traveled in exploitation films and kung fu movies and and other stuff. And, and every store had a giant horror movie section, a humongous one. It was usually the biggest section in the store. Right. Well, I mean, horror, I, horror was a popular genre at the time. Yep. Still is. And it was uh, – but there was so much that was being released on video. Oh, straight to video. It, it, even though the genre was very popular, there was stuff that was coming out that had been out years ago that was being re-released on video. Right. And sequels were coming out that were direct to video. It's always the biggest section because that tends to get the most traffic. And foreign film, uh, foreign films that were overdubbed too. Right. So I, I must have walked by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre VHS tape a hundred thousand times and was always like, eh, I don't know if I'm ready for this movie. Yeah. And. As a you know, it was, and then yeah, I it was finally a, rented it and watched it and was like, "Wow, this is like really compelling." Yep, and not at all gory like I expected it to be. Right, there's only but one it was really, really one really kind of like cringy scene whenever um, uh, the kid in the wheelchair gets the chainsaw. You know, that's kind of like wow. But uh, yeah, the yeah. the movie is actually just fantastic storytelling. Very, very watchable. Yeah. Even even now, and I've I've watched it with my own kids, and they're like, this movie's a little bit slow, but I don't want to not watch it. You know what I mean? It's paced it's paced different than modern movies are, as anything from the 70s, but still super watchable and very thought-provoking and, and dare, dare I say, a lot of fun. So here's a trivia question for you. Okay. In the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original, and in the 2003 remake, there is an opening narration, and they actually got the same person to do it on both films. And it's somebody famous. Do you know who it is? I do not. It is John Larroquette from Night Court. Oh. <laughs> John Larroquette does the uh, the opening narration of both the 1974 classic and the 2003 remake. All right. So let's move on to October the 2nd. Bill? What do you know about snails? Uh, slugs and snails are after me, and DDT keeps me happy. <laughs> well, in 1851, the Pasolianic Sympathetic Compass, I hope I pronounced that correctly, Go on. It is a tool that was built to test the scientific hypothesis that snails create permanent telepathic links when they mate. It gets demonstrated, but is proven to be entirely fake. Now... It's, there is a lot is, to dissect there's here. There is a lot to dissect, yes. And not just snails. This this whole thing reads to me like something that an eighth grader who furtered away his two weeks for a science project comes up with the day before it's due while he's eating Cheerios in the morning with a piece of poster board and says, here's my science. I think snails mate for life and they maintain a telepathic bond. And I can prove it with this box that you can't look in. And how can you how can you disprove something that is this ri just ridiculous on its face. Like, I, I don't even know what you would measure to make it measure. I went looking for a picture of this compass, <laughs> and all I find are drawings, like almost like wood carving drawings of people looking at snake at snails. <laughs> so I don't even know. It's what just, year was it this? It makes me want to – 1851. You know, I have said a, a, a long time – like I, 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 my whole life I've been like this. I wish I had no ethics. 
because the people are so easily fooled and gullible. Like I, if, if I had no ethics, I would just go out there with like a deck of tarot cards and I'd just be like, oh yes, and just like uh, you know, cold read the shit out of people, right? Or you know, sell them some freaking snake oil, or you know, pr- you know. Do you remember? I, I, I'm gonna say it was about. 10 years ago now people were doing oil pulling do you remember that yes oil pulling for those of you who are not in the know is this practice where you would take a tablespoon i guess it was of like vegetable oil uh coconut oil specifically put it in your mouth and then swish it around in your mouth for like five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever and it was supposed to like everything else, remove toxins and promote healing. Right. It was supposed to be like super good. And people like, it was like all the rage for about 10 or 11 days. Yep. The same, the same amount of time that people brushing their teeth with charcoal was all the rage. Right. Which followed that like within a year. Um, I look at this and I think like, what, what is the market for a contraption to test the telepathy of snails? (laughs) And what would you even do with it? Like, I, I, like, okay, Bill and I, with our um, Pasolinanolilic synthetic compass medicine show, roll up into town, and we say, welcome you and welcome you. You have the greatest thing. We've got the greatest thing ever. You, you've got a drought, and you've got the plague, and everything's terrible. But, boy, I have some snails that have mated, and they are telepathically connected, and you can be, too. And I have the box to prove it. All you have to do is put on this snail costume. <laughs> but, like, what do you do with this? Like, what the hell is the end market for something as ridiculous as this? And, yeah, and also, what do you Yeah, what do you do with this information? These snails are <laughs> psycho- psychopathically, you know, connected for life. Wait, wait. Okay, cool. What right. time's lunch? Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. What, what? Now what? What do they do now? Well, that's <laughs> it. They're just telepathically, okay. I don't understand, but all right. So what is it? What do you want? What do you want me to invest in? I want you to invest in my in my compass. And you know, I really hope that they are telepathically connected because I don't know if you've noticed this. Snails don't have an extensive vocabulary, <laughs> <laughs> and they and they have a hard time writing because the pen never comes off the paper, and they don't articulate very well because they don't have teeth or tongues. Right. They yeah. they communicate with a series of. <laughs> <laughs> and and all of their names are Shelly. Oh, 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 you're fired. Oh, oh. I, I feel like I should have a thousand million ping pong balls dropped on my head, Bill. Oh, funny you should mention. <laughs> Moving on to October the 3rd, 1955, the debut of the greatest children's program ever, if you ask me. Captain Kangaroo. Captain Kangaroo was my regular morning uh, companion as a young child. Yep. I only watched it. uh, My memory serves that it was. I only watched it at my grandmother's house. So I guess Uh, it came on on weekends. It was for me. It was. Well, it was on Channel 6 uh, in New Bedford on weekdays in the mornings. And it used to be that we could watch that. And right after that, we had to leave to walk to school. Uh-huh. And it took just as long to get to school right before school started if we left as soon as Captain Kangaroo had ended. So that was part of our okay. – we were as long as we had breakfast and we were ready to go, by the time Captain Kangaroo started, we could watch Captain Kangaroo and then leave and walk to school. Yep. Okay. Uphill both ways in the snow, yeah, yada, yada, yada. But um, my, 
Yeah, my memory, my memory pricks that I watched it at my grandmother's house, but that might not be, you know, yeah, maybe may your false memory. I'm talking like five years old, six years old here. I watched it until I was a lot older than that, yeah. which is sad. I remember there was there was Moose was one of his puppets. Mr. Moose and Mr. Bunny Rabbit. Yep. Bunny yep. didn't talk, but the Moose did. That's correct. And the Moose was a troublemaker. The Moose was a troublemaker. Yep. He was very funny. Yep. And uh, his, you know, his companion for the length of the show was Mr. Green Jeans. And I love the rumor uh, about Mr. Green Jeans is that he was Ted Nugent's father, <laughs> which is hilarious because look at Mr. Green Jeans. He does. He looks just like Ted Nugent. He, yeah, he does. He Great. Does. You know, that, that kind of children's programming hasn't existed in an awfully long time. The, the I think the reason that it, it lasted as long as it did and it ended up in syndication for as long as it did is because – it was on it, until, what, 83? 1983 or 84, yeah. It gave parents an ability to plonk their kids down and then get ready for themselves to go off and go to work. You know, that show sort of grew up with the now the two parents are working environment that, that developed after the 1950s right. and into the 1970s. It's amazing that it was a show that, that lasted that long. And it was very gentle. As I remember it, it taught sort of good citizenship and being polite. It was like the commercial version of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. But I don't ever remember there being commercials during Captain Kangaroo because I think it was illegal to have commercials on during children's programming at that time in the morning. But again, I could be wrong. That's entirely possible. Uh, what was great about like that whole you know a generation of children's shows, like as adults that you know that we grew up on it, like there's such a, a love now for Fred Rogers, especially with the movie that came out earlier this year. Yep. There's that great scene from the trailer where everybody on the train is singing to Mr. Rogers. Right. That was something that sticks out in my mind because Captain Kangaroo was on for so long. I mean, here's you and I watching it, you know, in the you know, in the 70s. But he had already been on for 20 years. Right. Before 55, yep. He had been on TV as Clarabelle the Clown. That's how my mom knew of him. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. He was Clarabelle on um the Howdy Doody show then. Yep. Oh, wow. What I remember about the Captain Kangaroo show is every show started out with, you know, popular celebrities of the day saying, good morning, Captain. And after like, you know, four or five of them, it would show Captain Kangaroo and he would say, good morning. And then the show right. would start because, yep. I mean, everybody loved the guy. There yep. was another Captain Kangaroo afterwards. It was like a Scottish guy, but it never, it didn't take off. Didn't, didn't take off. That kind of that kind of TV just can't exist anymore. It's like the the universe has changed in a way that, that it just doesn't resonate the way that it did. Yep. Again, we only had three channels. Right. Yeah. Kid, so you didn't have a lot of choices. Cap yeah. Captain Kangaroo, or like a rerun of That Girl, or well, the news. somebody talking about the morning news. Yeah. yeah. Trivia question: Do yeah. you know why his name was Captain Kangaroo? I do not. He was called Captain Kangaroo because the jacket he wore had very large pockets. Well, that makes a ton of sense. That's why he was Captain Kangaroo. Yep. Did he keep his young in those pockets? To the best of my knowledge, Bob Keeshan was not a marsupial. Oh, yep. okay. Well, it still makes sense, I guess, on the pocket. But I, I I, don't know. You can't prove a negative. So <laughs> That's true. All right. So what do you have for October the 4th? October the 4th, I have 1996. Van Halen announces that Gary Sharon, the lead singer from Extreme, would replace Sammy Hagar for the recording of a record that would be released as Van Halen 3, the third iteration of Van Halen. 
it's not a great record. You know, here's the thing. Van Halen is like Kiss without makeup to me. They have a very devout following. They have people that absolutely love them to this day, especially the original lineup. I, 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 I don't get it. I kind of don't get it. I'm sort of like that with Van Halen and with ACDC. <laughs> I still see people my age and older who when there are two different groups that we're going to talk about here. Mm-hmm. One is when they hear Thunderstruck on FM radio yep. after the commercial for the used car lot and before the commercial for the, the dental implant place because it's played 75 times a day. Still headbang and go, yeah, Thunderstruck. <laughs> and they haven't like they haven't ever heard that song in the last month. And then those who put it on of their own volition <laughs> because it's like. You can just spin the the dial on the radio anywhere, and you'll probably hear friggin' Thunderstruck. Yep. The thing with Van Halen is they were just very. F- they were like, like I said, I compared them to Kiss. They were very flashy. They had a, a you know a guitar player that was renowned at being you know he was like one of the first flashy great guitar oh, yeah. players for that era. You know, he was great. Did you, did you ever see Van Halen live? I never did. I saw them on the. I think it was the OU812 tour because my brother's car broke down on the way to the Worcester Central. Mm-hmm. And he called and he's like, hey, uh, I'm waiting for a tow truck and my friends want to go see Van Halen. If you come and pick them up, I'll give you my ticket. All right. So I went to see Van Halen. This is like 1989 or so, uh-huh. sitting in the Worcester Centrum. And I'm three songs in and I doze off. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like only like five rows back from the front. And I doze off, and I woke up with, boom, good night, drive safely. Yeah. And the lights, the house lights coming up, and I was like, oh, boy. Well, the thing, so I yeah, missed that, the whole show. that was the thing was like, so you get Van Halen's first, I, I think it was like four albums, five, four or five. You know, you got David Lee Roth, wow, 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 you know, kind of a, you know, it's it's party rock, you know, like, I, and I'll say it again, they, they were kind of like a, in the same vein as Kiss. Yep, They're just a very exciting band, you know. And uh, it was actually, uh, you could make the argument, Gene Simmons or Paul Stanley that actually discovered Van Halen. Right. Yeah, it was Gene Simmons. Yep. Um, well, if you, if you read the books, Paul Stanley says it was him. So. Oh. But, well, and it, I know Gene Simmons was going to produce their first album right. and didn't. You know, then, you know, the famous breakup from David Lee Roth and then Sammy Hagar takes over. And then when the 5150 album came out. Yep. As uh, I think I was like 15 years old, right? Yep. I was very excited because this, the lead single from that album, Why Can't This Be Love, I loved it. I loved that song. And to this day, I still like that song. Right. And then, you know, I bought the album and I was like, oh my God, I like Van Halen. This yep. this band that I never liked before that all the popular, you know, kids that always wanted to beat me up in high school liked. Well, guess what? Now I like them. I, all right. That's cool. I, I'm, I'm on board. And then right. everybody hated them. <laughs> well, I, I think that the big, like the big issue between David Lee Roth and we're not even talking about Gary Sharon yet. So that's right. how weird this band is. Oh, that's right? going to take like two seconds. Right. So. Yes. Um, don't listen to that record. It stinks. But the difference between David Lee Roth and, and Sammy Hagar, I... I can I can sum it up in one word is is showman David Lee Roth in his prime because he's not in his prime now, but in his prime was right around 87, 88, 89. Uh, as far as prime fame goes as a solo artist, he was so fantastic. I saw him live on the the skyscraper tour. Yep, and he was all over the stage. He had a great band with him with like Billy Sheehan and um, 
and Steve, Steve Vai. Steve Vai, yep. And he was all over the stage. There was a bunch of theatrical stuff. They did this humongous giant band like um, Steel Drum Song. It was crazy. I felt like I was seeing him in a club and I was at the Providence Civic Center. It was one of the best concerts I've ever been to. And I also saw Van Halen. Sammy Hagar is so boring that I fell asleep two songs into the show and didn't wake up to the because he's got as much charisma as my foot. My left foot. Well, he's a guitar player. Right. And he's playing guitar and behind a microphone. That's a, yep. that's where he belongs. Yep. Um and and I'm not I'm not talking smack about Sammy Hagar. I like Sammy Hagar. He's got a great voice. He's a fantastic guitar player. He's a good songwriter. He just You want you want to hear me? You want to hear me say yeah. it? You want to hear me say yes. it cuz I'll say yeah. it out loud. Ready? Do it. Do it. Everybody used to say, "Oh, Van, Sammy Hagar ruined Van Halen." You know, you know what? Here's, here's me going on record. Van Halen ruined Sammy Hagar. Because <laughs> Sammy Hagar was fine before. Freaking three lock box and can't drive 55. He was fine oh, remember, before. Remember Heavy Metal on the Heavy Metal soundtrack? Hell yeah. Right? Right. That song's fantastic. So the Van Halen brothers are notoriously difficult to work with. Seemingly, they get along with each other and nobody else. Right. So it only made sense that whenever Michael Anthony left, they got Wolfgang Van Halen, uh, Eddie Van Halen's son, to take his place. If your name isn't Van Halen, you're not going to get along with these guys. I have seen them described as the Van Halen Brothers band. <laughs> Gary Sharon was uh, the singer for the band Extreme. Extreme. Beloved by girls uh, yeah. in our generation. Now, Extreme oh. was out of Brockton. They weren't too far from, from us. I remember seeing Extreme on, the, there used to be a show on MTV called The Basement Tapes. Do you remember that? Yep, I do. And they used to play unsigned bands. They'd play like yep. five videos a week. And Extreme would pop up on there fairly often. They had a very popular song called Mother Don't Want to Go to School Today. Yep. I don't know who was in charge of writing the lyrics over Extreme. I'm going to guess it was Gary Sharon, typically. You know, the singer. Unless you're Rush, typically the singer writes the lyrics. Right. Um, that guy needs to grow the hell up because every song, every song on that first Extreme album, lyrically, it sounded like a, a fifth grader wrote it. Yeah. Because it was like all about like nursery rhymes and not wanting to go to school and whatever. Yeah, the lyrical complexity of like another bad creation. You know? Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Not, uh, not, in, not great. From the playground, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, at any rate, uh, yeah, f uh, future worst song ever contenders. Uh, so at any rate, uh, uh, I actually never listened to anything off of Van Halen 3 because one, like I said, uh, outside of 5150, I never really dug Van Halen all that much. And like I said, Extreme, I don't know. So it was like they just took everything I didn't like and threw it all in one album. <laughs> The, the, the most I know about that album is a, a YouTube channel that you and I are both big fans of, Todd in the Shadows. Yep. Yeah, I love that show. Yeah, he's, love that. He's got, uh, he's got one of his Train Records episodes about Van Halen 3, which you, if you haven't seen it, you need to. Nice. Yeah. Nice. What's funny, like, you know, if you think of uh, Halen 2, like, there's always angst when a singer, when a singer changes out, right? Yeah. And we've seen it happen before. ACDC, Bon Scott died. It got replaced with Brian Johnson. Right. And they went on to much fame and success. I'm just struck with Brian Johnson, right? right? There's a and there's a there's a difference, like when that happens, right? Yeah. So the music doesn't stay the same. So if you look at somebody like Iron Maiden, yeah. So Maiden went from Paul Diano to Bruce Dickinson, who still sings 
for the band. But in that time, he left for a while and was replaced by Blaze Bailey. Yep. Judas Priest lost Rob Halford for a while to Ripper Owen. The records and the tours that they did with those other singers are great. Yeah. The, the Blaze, They're just the, really different. The Blaze Bailey you know? uh, album, uh, there's one song called Virus, which is just yep. fantastic. Whenever I saw Iron Maiden last summer, they actually did a Blaze Bailey song. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. At some point, they do live albums and they re-record. Maybe I'll go back and try to listen to a couple of tracks off of Van Halen 3 just to see how how bad it actually is. I remember when I was a kid, Bruce Dickinson was Iron Maiden as far as we were concerned. But I went back and I listened to the Paul Diano stuff and it's like, well, this guy doesn't have the voice and all that. But later on, I came to really, really appreciate the, the Paul Diano stuff. Even though his voice is so different than Bruce Dickinson's, this, both men can sing like the Phantom of the Opera. Yes. And... The song itself is is just great in both versions, and there's no one that's better than the other. It's just it's really amazing. Right. All right, so uh, yeah. let's move on to the celebrity birthdays. I'm going to start September 28th, 1964. Janine Garofalo. Janine Garofalo. I had the most ridiculous crush on her I, in yeah, about so, 1995, 96, 97. So I, you know what was interesting? Talk about the way that like the, the times have changed. Like during the, the 90s when she was, uh, you know, a popular icon and all that, she was like one of the first girls that had like a lot of tattoos. She kept them hidden, but she had a lot of tattoos. Now, yep. go ahead, name a girl that doesn't have tattoos. They're, yeah, right. It's almost impossible to find. So you mentioned having a, a crush on Janine Garofalo, as did I. In the early days of AOL, which we were talking about either last week or the week before, they used to do like celebrity chats, you know, f that were hosted yeah. by uh, by uh, AOL, and you could type in a question, and sometimes they would answer, and sometimes they wouldn't. And wouldn't you know it, Janine Garofalo answered my question. Oh, yeah. nice. Because I, I forgot how I worded it, but I mentioned that, you know, she wasn't, she didn't have the Hollywood glamour looks. Right. But because she didn't have those Hollywood glamour looks, it actually made her more attractive mm -hmm. to the, you know, alternative set, which was, you know, the popular set at that time. You know, how do, you know, how does she feel about that? She's like, I'm not sure if this is actually a question, but thank you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, let's jump to September 29th of 1935 when an American icon, one of the grandparents of rock and roll, the man who bridged country and western and blues music and boogie woogie, hit the scene. Jerry Lee Lewis, born in 1935. The killer. The killer. The man who knew who, uh, who uh, goodness gracious, had great balls of fire. Mm -hmm. So great that he married his 13-year-old cousin. Um, yeah, that's not weird at all. That's not strange. Yeah. He's also the cousin of uh, that televangelist, Jimmy Swaggart. Oh, I didn't know that. Jimmy, he's Jimmy Swaggart's cousin, yeah. So, interesting guy. Uh, went to Graceland to shoot Elvis Presley at one point for stealing his his, his fame. And uh, amazing friggin' piano player. Astonishingly good piano player to watch him play. Yep. If you want to see, like, where not only where, where rock and roll got to start, but, like, the genetic material that makes up punk rock, watch the films of him playing in the early 1950s. I had tickets to go see him, but he ended up canceling the show. All right, so the next birthday is September the 30th, 1954. The grooviest man that ever walked the planet, Barry Williams, your friend and mine, Greg Brady. The oldest brother of the TV show that defined the blended family, right? Right. The first show to show two parents sleeping in the same bed. 
The Brady Bunch. Yep. I remember watching that show when I was a kid and all the way through reruns as a young adult. Like the contrast between what the Brady Bunch was presented as and what they all were behind the scenes is insanity. Yeah. Yeah, the one that really kind of cracked it open for that show was Barry Williams' book, uh, Growing Up Brady. It's totally, totally worth a read. It's super duper readable and you, you get his take on a whole bunch of like weird tidbits on the show, like how Robert Reed refused to shoot the last, I think, two episodes because the scripts were so bad. So he just took off and, and he, that's why he's not in them and, uh, it's all kinds of crazy, um, related to that show. So my, uh, Barry Williams was doing, a a show or whatever, uh, uh, and it was he was over at UMass, so you know nearby. And my friend Maggie, you know, did the uh, the meet and greet afterwards, and he was signing an autograph. And she says, "Can you sign it to Maggie? I'm your biggest fan, Barry Williams." He just looks at her and goes, "No." <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, next day, October right. the first, October first, nineteen twenty four. Uh, America's most unsung president, Jimmy Carter, still alive to this day, 39th president of the United States, uh, is born in Plains, Georgia. They uh, Over the summer, him and his wife celebrated the 75th wedding anniversary. He's 96 years old as of now. Yep. Amazingly still building houses for Habitat for Humanity, something he's done since he stopped being president in 1980. Astonishing guy, kind of keeps to himself, but isn't afraid to kind of come out of the shadows and be interviewed now and then. Mm-hmm. But he's dedicated his whole life after his presidency to addressing the housing crisis in the single most hands-on way possible by literally building houses with his bare hands. He goes out and he builds them as a carpenter. It's amazing. Astonishing yeah, dude. As a president, like towards the end of his presidency because of the uh, the Iran hostage situation, you know, he was a very, very unpopular president. He was really, really, really yep. down in the polls. He got stomped in the election. He did. He got crushed. You know, in, in retrospect, like looking back, uh, I'll, I'll go on record right now, even though I was only a kid and wasn't definitely wasn't a voting age, but I'll, I'll say it right now. Uh, Mr. Carter, we we owe you a, a tremendous apology and a debt of gratitude. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember the, the, the speech that sort of kind of sealed his fate was the Malays in America speech that didn't present the United States as an optimistic place with a future and. Reagan was able to capitalize on that with his Shining City on the Hill speech, and that was that. And sometimes, you know, the fantasy of what you are, what you want to be, eclipses the reality of what you are, and it's to your detriment. Uh, So, happy birthday, Mr. Carter. Happy Happy birthday, Mr. President. (laughs) So, that segues into, because I just mentioned Marilyn Monroe, and Marilyn Monroe's first on-screen appearance, to the best of my knowledge, was in a movie called Love Happy, which starred the person who celebrates his birthday, October 2nd, born in 1890, Julius Marx, better known to the world as Groucho, better known as the funniest man that ever walked the planet. Definitely a funny guy. The first uh, sort of non-slapstick movie comedian to really go someplace with his two two compadres well, oh there was there was five there was five brothers at one point five when, brothers. yeah when they were in vaudeville there was like the three stooges plus yeah, two there was harpo groucho and chico zeppo. then zeppo and then there was also gummo gummo never jumped over to make the movies and then zeppo dropped out of the movies at one point groucho marx 
absolutely, if you talk to me at any length of time and know anything about the Marx Brothers, you know I steal all of his jokes. Definitely does. I'll test that. <laughs> One of the greatest days I've ever had in my life was I um, I went to a comic book convention and I cosplayed as Groucho Marx. And I spent the entire day in character telling different stories, but as Groucho Marx. Because you know, I know like so much about the guy. So I was able to tell right. his stories and stuff like that. And I had so many of the celebrities stop and talk to me about stuff. And yeah, uh, I mean, it was really D-list celebrities, but one of them was freaking Bobby Steele, who used to be in the Misfits, and I'm a big Misfits fan, and me and Bobby Steele just went back and forth. Whenever I got out of there, I called my friend. I was like, dude, I was just all about, <laughs> all excited. Oh, yeah, all excited. That's awesome. All right. Like a, all, right. all right, October 3rd, 1959, American actor and comedian Greg Proops is born. Now, you may not realize that you know who this is. He was a player on the British version of the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? And he also showed up on the American version that uh, Drew Carey hosted for a long time. He's really funny. He's also done a whole bunch of commercials and bit parts and movies and stuff. Yep. But he's a really, really, really funny dude. And as soon as you see his face, you'll be like, I know that guy. I, uh, I... Um, but he's yeah. a funny cat. I, like everybody else, I love Whose Line Is It Anyway. The only problem is, because so many people loved it, they all thought that they could do it. Yeah, it definitely helped uh, discourage of... Yeah. It's like, hey, you want to come see my improv show? Oh, no. <sighs> we used to watch that show. when I went to college in England for three semesters, and we used to get together on Friday night to watch that show as a group because we only had three TVs on yep. campus. It would be like that would be the night that everybody bought pizza or Chinese takeaway or Indian takeaway or whatever. And we would all sit there and cackle like idiots for half an hour while that show was on. Improv is definitely a very, very specific skill set. All right, let's uh, let's get on to October the 4th, 1923. You damn dirty apes, get your dead cold hands off of my gun, Mr. Charlton Heston. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's. You'll pry this gun out of my cold dead damn hands. Dirty apes, yeah. Not they're yep. damn dirty apes. Yes, Charles. Yep. Uh, leader of the NRA for a lot of years. Uh, most famous for the um, the Planet of the Apes movies. Chariot enthusiast. Yep. <laughs> ben Hur. Yeah. You know, while I don't agree with a lot of the stuff that he did, I will give him credit that he <laughs> stood by his guns. Ha <laughs> ha. <laughs> yeah. Oh. There, I said it. There. I'm not taking it back. Oh. No, I don't blame you. All right, well, on that, let's talk about... The worst song ever. All right, what is our contender for the worst song ever this week? Well, this was a tough one, Bill. Was it tough to decide, or was it just tough to listen to? It was Ugh. both. But it eventually, this song won out. Unlike the main character of this song, it won. This one won the race. <laughs> it, this is a, a a song called "Tell Laura I Love Her" uh, by Ricky Valance, and it was it peaked at number one in the UK in 1960. And this two minute torture <laughs> session is a super sappy love song about a guy who dies in a car wreck. Oh, so romantic! Racing to win money to buy his girlfriend an engagement ring. This is the kind of song that makes you want to just want stuff your ears with cotton or tissue or whatever you have handy, possibly <laughs> insects, 
and then chew a jumbo wad of tinfoil. Uh, hold, hold on, let's, uh, let's play a clip. Okay. No one knows what happened that day How his car overturned in flames But as they pulled him from the twisted wreck With his dying breath they heard him say Tell Laura I love her Tell Laura I need her Okay, so wait, you said this song came out in 1960? All right, this is one of those, like, storytelling songs. This is, like, now, I would have guessed, like, 1973. It's exactly like Bad Out of Hell, except not good. <laughs> it's, a, it's like Bad Out of Hell in every respect, except for the good part. Or, yeah. or Leader of the Pack, if Leader of the Pack wasn't good. Yeah, this is, I don't know. Number one, you said, right? Yep. Number, one, or, number one in America or UK? No, no number one in the UK. All right, this see, completely explains to me why in three years the Beatles would like take over the world. No, this explains to me why The Cure was so damn popular. <laughs> it's just it, this is just dreary. I don't know if they did any car wreck love songs, but they 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 very well could have. It would have been in the <laughs> milieu. Not in so many words, but yeah. It's 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 like an unironic Smith song, right? <laughs> I'd like to find somebody that was around in 1960 and say, you know, this isn't so much a toe tapper as it is a uh, toe, toe tagger. Yeah, toe tagger. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell? Why were you going running out and buying this, you know, pushing people out of the way to buy this record? Look, I, I picked up this new song, honey. Check it out. And then at the end, she looks at you and is like, are you going to die? Is that what you're trying to tell me? <laughs> yeah. Well, fortunately, the whole genre of teen death song seems to be over now, so. Uh, uh, yeah, for now. Everything that's old is new again. <laughs> it will be back. Like our good friends Beavis and Butthead once said, the more things change, the more they suck. <laughs> yes. All right, but that is going to wrap up this week's show. We will see you guys next week. Have a great week, everybody. Say goodnight, Jeff. Goodnight, Jeff. All right, bye, guys. Bye, everybody. Special thanks to James Cosser for our theme music. Thank you so much for listening to Twibbly. This week was way better last year. You can follow and or message us over on Instagram or on Facebook at T-W-W-W-B-L-Y. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Make sure you tell your friends if you like our show. And if you don't like our show, tell your friends you did like it. It'll be a great prank you can play on them. Have a good week, guys.